All right, ladies, hope uh, we all fast easy. Hope you guys are all well. And um, we're going to look at um, the nature and the development of uh, Kabbalah as it becomes a whole new system of, uh, of um, you know, relating to, to Torah knowledge. Um, and so let's just try and trace the, the history of it for a bit. Now, um, what, we, uh, what, we, what we're going to find is go through some basic concepts. And the very first one is that we, uh, we need to appreciate that uh, at, at Sinai, Moshe Rabbeinu receives uh, the written Torah from Hashem at Sinai. And um, the concept of Sinai is actually a broader concept than, than just on the mountain. In other words, uh, what's happening with the Torah is that um, Hashem, at that point in time, teaches Moshe Rabbeinu all the, ba all the major, all the principles, all the details and the principles. But there's, of course, certain principles which, uh, or historical events that haven't yet taken place. Uh, and therefore, those events which are going to be included into the Torah um, need, to, need to actually happen first. Uh, at the same time, what's interesting is, is that there seems to be, um, let's call it different, different versions of the Torah, different texts of the Torah, because uh, the verses themselves um, tell us about various covenants that Akosh Baruch Hu made with, with, with Am Yisrael. So one Pasuk will say, you know, Hashem spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu uh, and, he, and, and he gave him this Torah at, at Sinai. Then there's a, another Pasuk which will say, Hashem spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu from Oel Moed, which is the actual uh, the Mishkan that you know the from the actual Kodeshim of the actual from inside the from inside the Mishkan. There's this uh, concept of Oel Moed. So there's a, a nature of prophetic transmission that's coming from there. So Sinai, when we say Moshe Kibbal Torah Sinai, that Moshe Rabbeinu receives Torah from Sinai. Sinai is sort of a broader platform of, of, the, of, of the world of prophecy. Now, interestingly enough, there's a, another pasuk, a third pasuk, which says that Hashem speaks to Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, bar vot moav, um, and which is the third pasuk, um, sort of hinting to us the fact that there, was, there were other laws and ideas that were, um, wouldn't say they were new, but they were expressed in a in a in a in a way which was different from before, which means that the actual Torah text that we have, the actual Torah text that we have, is actually uh, made up from three different um, uh, transmissions from Hashem to Moshe Rabbeinu. So the entire Torah, as we know, is given is spoken out to Moshe Rabbeinu at Sinai, but the actual Torah text that we possess is made up of a Hashem decided which one of the particular prophetic revelations uh, are going to be put together, if you will, in order to create the actual Torah text that we today today use. And there are various reasons for why this takes place, but it's important that this this idea, uh, the understanding of the fact that the Torah text that we have today 
uh, and when we say it comes from Sinai, uh, it's it's Sinai is quite broad. It more it more like it's like the, a Sinai type experience of 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 prophecy that Moshe Rabbeinu has. Um, and there were three of them. To eventually, Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu to make the final Torah text. So the, the receiving of Torah itself, Torah transmission. There's three of them, but the actual Torah text eventually becomes. Uh, you know, incorporates everything that was transmitted, but Hashem takes from uh, each revelation and uh, instructs Moshe Rabbeinu to put it together to create the actual Torah text uh, that, that we have. So this is not that well known, but this is based on the psukim that we find in, in Torah itself. Um, so Sinai, Oel Moed, and Arvot Moav. Arvot Moav was just that, uh, just the, the place before we moved into across the Jordan River into the into the land of Israel before Moshe Rabbeinu goes and dies. Um, so that's the that's the actual uh, written Torah from Sinai. So the the details, nothing is really changed. It's not like we scratch out a a law and uh, and and put in a new one. It's more like how do you express the laws um, and how does it incorporate all the the hints to oral traditions um, in the actual written text as well. Um, having said that, at the same time that Hashem is, is um, getting Moshe Rabbeinu to write uh, a, a text, Hashem is also transmitting to him verbally um, what we call the oral tradition, which is the, the in-depth explanations and understandings of uh, the whole mechanics of all the different uh, laws of the Torah. And this oral law um, was given side by side with the written law. So we know Torah Shebikhtav is the written law, Torah Shebalpeh is, uh, is the oral law. And uh, this, this tradition of, of the Torah Shebalpeh, the oral law, um, was also divided into two parts. And the one part is what we would say today as a revealed part of the of the oral tradition, which means it's the the mainframe, the classic approach to understanding the depth of Torah. But then there's a, a concealed part, a nistar, a, a, a hidden part of Torah of the oral tradition, which was transmitted to Moshe Rabbeinu. And this concealed piece of Torah includes within it. Uh, the, the greatest uh, secrets of spirituality. And um, they are essentially not just uh, spoken out to uh, very few people, but they also, when, you're, when, you're, when, you, when you were trying to teach this kind of uh, level of concealed Torah, you had to be uh, very, very careful to know, to not understand these uh, complex issues. Um, a misunderstanding leads to all sorts of... Uh, approaches which are dangerous and so you really had to be on a level to understand it at the same time it's also uh hinted to in the written torah as well so the greatest uh secrets should be able to uh, be extracted from the written part of the torah just like you would extract uh whether it's rules of of analysis um halachic derivations etc the the world of the hidden side of of Torah is also embedded within the the fabric of the of the letters of the Torah, 
Um, now, the revealed part, the nigle, the revealed part of Torah, of the oral law, was taught by Moshe Rabbeinu to all of Am Yisrael. And um, the concealed Torah was taught only to certain individuals that were worthy uh, of holding this uh, information in each generation. Now, uh, this idea of trying to uh, create a, a secret society, if you will, of, uh, of, of great scholars um, was there to protect the nature of this knowledge from getting into the hands of the wrong people. Once you get, you'll see, we'll give you historical examples. Um, we, we've got to be very careful because it's so easy to misinterpret what's going on. It leads you to, uh, to ridiculous conclusions sometimes. Um, so in order to protect the nature of Torah, you had to you had to create a vehicle by which it wouldn't be forgotten, and at the same time wouldn't get into the, the hands of people who weren't worthy of it. And so this is what the idea of oral Torah is about, really. It's uh it's it forces you to to learn it from a teacher. Um that teacher can then make sure that the information is transmitted to you. Uh, accurately and such that you know he can see that you understand it and if not he can clarify it um so this is never this oral law should have always been oral and um even though our uh talmud is really uh, a so-called printed version of what originally was the oral law but we try to keep it oral for as long as we could and it was only it was only um it was only written down as notes of the various uh, rabbonim or people who were studying Torah. And even this esoteric Kabbalah, even this concealed part of the Torah, people were out, allowed to write notes on, on, on private, uh, not private notebooks, in scrolls, um, allowing them to make sure they didn't forget what was going on. And they they were never published. You had to keep them... You had to keep them hidden, so to speak. And this was the this was the scenario for about uh, fifteen hundred years, from uh, from the time that Hashem revealed Himself to Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai, the year two four four eight in the in the Jewish calendar, and all the way through until the, the time. This is now going forward until in the the Hebrew calendar. This date doesn't really mean much to us but you know 3900 uh, let's call it 960 or 3975 depending on on whether you you know what date you exactly give for the public for the writing down of the Mishnah now the reason why the Mishnah which was uh, really which is today the the recording of of oral Torah the reason why it was written down is because um Am Yisrael was, was sent into exile, and it became almost impossible to fully preserve um, this oral tradition. And so uh, Rebbe, Rabbi Yudha Nasi, who, who we refer to as Rabbeinu HaKadosh, he eventually, around the year 200, um, some people put it 185, others 200, some even go 214, but it's, you know, w w within those, within that, that, period of time i guess to round it off you say that in the year 200 we're more or less um rebbe writes down all of this oral torah um in order to make sure that it wouldn't be forgotten 
and he writes it down and he compiles it into an encyclopedia, a lachic encyclopedia called the Mishnah. And this now was uh, published and it was now copied. Different scrolls were were handed out to to as many people as possible to keep uh, the knowledge of the what was now the oral tradition uh, alive. And uh, you know there was a certain level of let's call it um, a certain level of depth and vitality which was compromised by writing it down, but. Uh, the, it was decided and accepted that, you know, Rebbe, Rabbi Huda Anasi, that his decision, he based it on a pasuk that says, sometimes you have to realize that one has to, in, in order to preserve the Torah of Am Yisrael, one has to compromise a certain uh, approach to the Torah of Am Yisrael. Um, and if we don't do it, then people will forget it, and that'll be uh, much more damaging than the levels of Torah study that we will lose by keeping it completely in you know, our oral. And so for 1,500 years plus, um, everything was clear in terms of its two component parts, the written text that we have, and the only other written pieces were notes that students wrote. And then on the other side, the oral law, which remained oral. Now, Ravina Kadosh Rebbe, Rabbi Udanasi, it's all the same person. Um, he writes, he writes it down, and he, pu he publicizes it as an encyclopedia called the called the Mishnah. Um, now, um, at the same time, what wasn't written down um, is this, so to speak, uh, concealed form even of the oral law. So there was uh, this section of 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 secrets was not was was not published by Rebbe at the time, and he, uh, he he left that part, you know, completely secret. And the only records that were were known of were the so-called personal notebook manuscripts of the various uh, rabbonim who were studying it. Now we know that over the over this, the years that uh, that that simply pass on since Rebbe wrote the Mishnah through the Talmud. The Talmud now records all the conversations um, of the great sages of Israel that took place analyzing the Mishnah and using the Mishnah as a trigger to um, re reveal and analyze all the laws dealing with it. Now that takes, takes another 300 years until eventually uh, that piece of oral Torah is also written down and that's what we call the Gemara. So by the year 485 or 500, um, the Talmud is now published. And so a huge, a huge um, set of material of oral law is now, is now in writing. Now, as the years travel, um, even this concealed Torah um, is, uh, you know, is preserved by these notebooks, these these personal scrolls of people. And it's come to our it's 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 come down to us that we've got some of these particular now they are Svarim, they're books, but they were special manuscripts that were that were personal to people and they were they were recordings of these great secret parts of the Torah. So some of them are called the Sefer Yitzira, you might have heard of that. 
the book of creation. Um, according to some, some of the Torah that's passed down, already begins with Avram Avinu. But, it, uh, it, you know, so the, this book, the book of creation, is the ability to actually bring things into existence. Um, and, and therefore, you know, you can understand already why you've got to be careful with where this book, you know, gets to. But we, we have them now. They're actually available in prints. Um, there's another um, famous cipher, which is called Cipher Habahir. Uh, you know, Arya Kaplan, Rabbi Arya Kaplan, uh, he translated these for him into English. Um, it's a, it was quite a decision to do such a thing, but he, he did it. Uh, so we've got the Sefer Yitzirah, the Sefer Abahir. We've got uh, a, a set of scrolls called Pirkei Hechalot, um, which again describe all the, 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 the depths behind how Hashem runs the world. Um, but the most famous of all of the the, the so-called concealed Torah is uh, the product of um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, his teachings are incorporated into what is known as the Zohar and the various Tikkunim. Uh, they, they, so to speak, uh, are the repository of, of uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's um, Torah. And uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is celebrated as um, the greatest of all his contemporaries in the times of the Mishnah. And, um, you know, his knowledge was given over to a select group of students. And I also keep this, uh, the knowledge of the Zohar, uh, secret for, a, for, for quite a while. And um, the nature of how it is written is uh, in code to a degree, which means that you've got to be a real serious student to be able to study the actual original text and understand what's going on there because it's like gibberish. It's so much in code. The ideas, um, the, the words are, are, are so sparse, but yet they, they describe very, very complex scenarios. And, um, that, you know, to be able to really understand it, most, most people today, you know, even those who study Kabbalah, cannot understand the original texts. They, they rely on the explanations of great Rabonim who came after Rav Shumbar Yochai, who took his Torah and eventually explained it. And, if those, and, and then a century or two later, a, million, a millennium later, there were, when, the, when the world of Kabbalah became, as you will describe now, became more known about um, and the Zohar was then published. From there on, there were people who, who experts who looked at the Zohar and tried to bring it down and teach it to us. And their systems help us understand what the Zohar was driving at. But it's very, very, it's, it's not simple to be able to pick it up yourself, even for a person who's a proper Talmud Chochem, to pick up the original text and actually know what you're doing without the help of other great Rabbonim throughout the ages, explaining it out is almost, uh, it's, it's almost impossible. I mean, possibly you can, but you need to have tremendous knowledge where others have taken it down and simplified it for us. Um, and therefore, that's why it's sort of, it's always known as, you know, secretive. It's always concealed because nobody nobody can really help it until until it's opened up, opened up for you. Um, 
you don't just apply good logic to this type of problem. Um, that's that's Gamora. This is this is understanding the in depth of the. It's like trying to explain, you know, scientifically the the workings of things that you've never ever heard of. You've never been able to see with a microscope. You've never been able to see it. Somebody tries to explain to you the relationships between everything. Um, so this is the nature of these uh, these svarim, um, and they were written in such a way with this intention. They were written to be secret. They were written to be hidden, and that 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 they meant for it to be difficult to understand. So that no nobody who doesn't deserve to be there should be there. And you have to make sure that in order if you are you if you're learning it, you need a teacher to explain, you know, the the ideas to you. Um, and this is taught in order to protect it, that you to preserve the truth and to make sure that nobody makes uh, major mistakes in the areas of faith. Because the minute you start making mistakes and you hold of this Torah to be the absolute truth of how Hashem runs the world, um, you start making mistakes within the world of faith and philosophy. Uh, you 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 can turn out a uh, you can turn out a wreck and you can come out a totally different person. And therefore, we had to keep these books out of the public eye for for a long time. And so. Um, the idea of the time was the, that to keep this idea secret so that the masses of Amisel would not would not uh, spend time reading it when they weren't uh, ready to do so. So this is exactly what, it's almost like a mirror image of what happened to the oral Torah in the first place. So Hashem gives the written text, uh, and then he, then he teaches the oral Torah. That oral Torah was also not ever published and written down until, until the year 200. That's when Rabbi came along and initiated this revolution of a publication of of Mishnah. So that what happened to the original oral Torah still continued to maintain by the the concealed Torah, the hidden Torah, uh, what we call today, you know, the 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 laws of or the Torah of Kabbalah. So only a few select individuals in each generation had access to this this story, and uh, this continued. Uh, through the through the millennia, um, until eventually uh, it came uh, the, the 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 group of rabbonim, you know, called the goinim, who were let's call it um, the goinim, the goinim were the group of people who continued from after the Gomorrah was closed. So the Gomorrah was published around the, let's call it the year five hundred. So between 500 and the year 1000, just for rough numbers, that that time, historical time period, um, there were people there who had access to uh, to this Kabbalistic uh, knowledge, and um, what they what what they were what they did was at the time um, is that they did some work on the Zohar, and the Zohar, interestingly enough, the Zohar now was 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 uh was was used almost um the czar was taken and divided as a so-called weekly commentary on the torah so you took the czar with all its lessons and you codified it by parsha and that way um you could you could read the czar um and and those who were who were good enough to study it 
had a kind of a system, a systematic approach to it now. Um, and you were able to codify it as, as, as something adjunct to every weekly Torah portion. Um, now, something interesting happens over here. And this is uh, an interesting challenge to try and explain this properly. But from the time of the Goenim, within, within that time, over those 500 years, at the same time as uh, the Zohar was being sort of worked on by certain people, um, around that time, towards the end of that period of time, the amount of people who had access to the, to the scrolls and kept them you know, decreased and decreased until eventually, for some uh, reason, Hashem decided that the Zohar became almost completely concealed and lost from our world. And therefore, even the greatest of Rabbonim um, had no access to those manuscripts. They, they, they somehow, whether it was the, the persecution of the Jewish people, the, the nature of how society developed, um, there was there was a tremendous uh, so to speak, dark ages for the Jewish people as well. And maybe it kind of mirrored what was happening in the world at the time, especially in the Christian world. There was there was such a set of dark ages there. But as far as in the Jewish world, the, this, uh, the, the whole concept of Kabbalistic teachings and specifically the Zohar, you know, almost, almost was uh, unheard of by people, even the greatest of our Abonim. As if it was somehow Hashem decided it's not time for the, the, the knowledge of the Zohar to, to be used in the understanding of Torah. And um, the Rambam, the great rationalist, the Rambam, the Rambam writes about this. The Rambam has a the Rambam says as follows: He says that you know we we once had access to these great uh, secrets, which showed us the absolute truth of Torah. But he writes that the day grew dark and they disappeared, you know, leaving us in, in, in darkness. So the Rambam makes, you know, such a comment, which means that the Rambam himself is, um, the Rambam is himself knows, he knows something, but he doesn't know, he doesn't have the, the, the what to learn it from. Um, and one wonders why that took place. Why, why, did I, why did Hashem decide that Kabbalistic knowledge um, should be, it, its, its influence and its knowledge should, should be minimized to a point where you can even talk about it. The greatest scholars of the generation would talk about it as something having disappeared. Now, we'll hopefully develop, develop a theory you know, around this as to why this was so. But in its place, in, in so to speak, the in place of, of, let's call it these hidden secrets, which used to be used to, to describe the relationship between Hashem and the physical universe and how he created it, and, and specifically between Hashem and mankind and how he creates us and all the, the secrets there, therein, um, almost instead of it, you had to, you had to use your logic to, do, to understand you know, Torah, Torah uh, values and, and, and what lies behind it too. And so what takes the place of, of this uh, secret knowledge is pure logic, which we call today philosophy. Philosophy, as a word, means the, lo the love of knowledge. But it's, it's, a, uh, it's a very, it's, philosophy is not easy. 
it's looking to rationalize in human terms with superb knowledge why we do what we do uh, in our relationship to Kosh Baruch Hu. Trying to explain the mitzvot. Um, and so, so this is exactly what took its place. Um, so the, you know, the concealed Torah, the Zohar, became hidden from Klal Israel, and very, very few individuals um, were able to receive the knowledge passed on, you know, by word of mouth. Um, and therefore, these books, even quite possibly, if somebody showed you a manuscript, um, they, they wouldn't be understood. You needed somebody who Mamash had this tradition from Rabbonim going back. And all these Sforim became, you know, there was just no way of getting them. And so, therefore, uh, it's almost like spirituality receded into darkness and allowed human logic to, you know, scientific, philosophic uh, knowledge to come along and try and um, uh, develop an approach, you know, to try and explain what Amishal were doing. And in order to, even if you were a person of faith and you, you weren't, uh, you you know, you were always uh, enticed to keep up with the standards of the time. So let's say you know, science in the and philosophy is developing a pace in the world of the Greeks and the Arabs. Um, when all of this starts to develop, so what's a Jew going to do? He's not going to going to lag behind. So he's going to make use of 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 principles of analysis to try and demonstrate how true Torah is. Which it which is possible, but the level of depth is very very different. In fact, it's interesting that uh, after the after the period of the Goenim, we uh, we normally refer to the years between the year one thousand and fifteen hundred as the generation of the Rishonim, and the, the Rishonim means the first set of scholars. But it, and it normally refers to the fact that these this generation was the first to write down explanations of the actual Talmud and to codify halakha in, uh, in, in, a, in, in different types of encyclopedic type publications. So this, uh, this work that was this concept of taking all of Torah and codifying it um, and forcing Am Yisrael to learn Torah through um, the world of Halakha and not Kabbalah, this this exercise, uh, um, you know, became the focus of Am Yisrael's learning for those five hundred years. Uh, I would say even more, but we, we're talking to the the fifteen hundreds, and so this is possibly this is possibly. Um, uh, on the one hand, we understand that there's a diminishing of the light of spirituality in the world, and in its place, you have you have uh, philosophy, but it's a it's a shallow, it's a shallow expression of spirituality compared to what Kabbalah is. In fact, some of the Rishonim, the Ibn Ezra, the Ibn Ezra um, makes a comment. One of the great early Rishonim. Ibn Ezra writes, you know, based on a, a midrash, but he says that, you know, vai, you know, when Hashem created the world, vai erev, vai boker, and then then it was daytime, right? So vai erev, 
you know, what does Erev mean? Erev means evening, but evening is the word Erev uh, represents in modern, in, in, in Torah Hebrew, it represents an amalgamation, a, mi a mixture. Tarovet uh, is a halachic term when items get mixed in together and you can't really distinguish the various items. So when you, when in halachic uh, discussions you talk about a tarovet of meat and milk, you have a mixture of meat and milk, um, or chametz and 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 and, uh, and and pesach stuff. Whenever you have at least two items all mixed in together, you call it a tarovet, because it's it's not it's not clear. It's not boker is is to be able to distinguish. That's why we call daytime or morning boker. The light allows you to to, to distinguish between uh, variables. Erev is like it's it's a dark mass of things. You can't distinguish properly. Everything becomes mixed in one or the other, and you can't distinguish properly between these entities. So the Ibn Ezra talks about his period of time being like like erev, because it's, the shapes. Uh, the the formations, the understandings of the truth of Torah, you know, were were hidden, and so it's interesting how this really took place um, within um, within the world of of the the Goinim and the and the Rishonim, um, and so all the difficult questions of spirituality were answered through the lens of philosophy, and and. And it looks like, I mean, this is at least one approach of understanding it. This is what they had to work with. So the great Jewish uh, philosophers made the Torah, you know, explained Torah um, with the developing art of science philosophy that took place at that particular time. And for a while, it was almost as if philosophy was considered to be the hidden part of the oral Torah. Um, which was not true. Philosophy was just a logical approach to try, even, even though it's complicated. I mean, you know, maths and science, science is not for the faint-hearted. Um, but basically, a lot of people, you know, were, were um, challenged by the nature of our spiritual beliefs, and they used philosophy to try and explain it. And for many, it worked. You know, the Rambam wrote, uh, you know, the guide to the perplexed, and many others, even before the Rambam, Rasadja Gaon probably was the first person to publish a book, you know, Emunot Vedayot, where, you know, you had you had a, a philosophical treatise about things. And it's not that they were wrong, but they lacked that spirituality that, that we today have access to. They never had access to those um, real, you know, hidden bits of, of Kabbalah. Um, and this led to people, you know, switching beliefs. I mean, basically, you know, people, there were Jews who split off from the traditional rabbinic Judaism that we follow. And they, you know, even though this happened in the second Beit, times the second Beit Amidash as well, but, the, you know, this led them to, you can see that the mistaken philosophical approaches and ideas, how it can, how it can lead people completely astray from, uh, from what the real true north is. Uh, is, is, is all about. And so anyway, everybody, you know, for all these hundreds of years, we, we sort of learned halakha 
And next to it, especially if you were in the Sephardi lands, next to it, you sort of used philosophical approaches, um, you know, uh, to to uh, to explain the spiritual sides of things. Um, and so this is really what what happened. There were groups of of Jews who who were nervous about these philosophical approaches, trying to explain, uh, you know, the nature of spirituality. And 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 many of many of the Jews, cognizant of the danger, refused to engage in these philosophical speculations. Um, and they therefore they they felt that those rabbonim who were using philosophy um, were just you know heading down a very slippery slope. So you had this kind of a uh, I mean I, I don't want to uh, totally generalize, but. Um, to start trying to explain every miracle uh, that Hashem performed for Am Yisrael via scientific principles is only going to go so far. And, and uh, you know, it's also going to be dependent upon how well science is understood at the time. So there's a lot of there's vulnerability when you were using philosophy to explain um, spirituality. This was one of the major issues that, that people struggled with within the, within the world of philosophy. Um, anyway, there were some famous Goenim who, as I say, lived just before the turn of the millennia. So let's say from the 9th century, 10th century, um, you had great, great Goenim um, who, who, understood, who understood a little bit of, this, of the concealed Torah. And so High Gaon was one of them, and he he received this Kabbalah, and yet so he had to be careful how he he opposed the nature of philosophy, uh, and specifically applying scientific explanations for various you know miracles. Um, and, and if you couldn't, the danger was if you couldn't find a scientific uh, explanation, you were you, you were enticed to you were influenced to say ah oh, it's not true or the it never happened. So even the great um, genuine Jewish thinkers, the Rambam at their head, if you read the Rambam carefully, as 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 committed to um, the rationalization of mitzvot that he was, the Rambam would clearly tell you that if you can't find an explanation, um, the the fault is ours; it's not Hashem's, and therefore uh, you need to realize that. So even the Rambam's rational explanations. By his own admission, only go a certain only go a certain distance. Um, but some people didn't want to accept it, so it was like you know you, there was a lot of danger over there. Um, so these rabbonim had to, on the one hand, deal with uh, the the philosophies that were impacting the world, and the Jewish communities that lived within the non-Jewish world were you know so you had to deal with it. At the same time, you had to be able to preserve. The fact that uh, man doesn't know everything, and especially in those days when science was and philosophy was developing, you know, it's never going to be the same as spiritual speak. And this was the problem of reading all the esoteric books that were, are defined by the Gemara already as Greek wisdom. Um, so this is this is what happened: Greek wisdom, this philosophy. Um, in general, was made you know made our study of Torah very very vulnerable, and there were many rabbonim who banned the study of philosophy you know as 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 a result of this. Um, 
So what I'm saying is, is that in a sense, we missed uh, access to, to the world of Kabbalah and its manuscripts for a long time. And as a result of this, you, you couldn't really explain Torah as it should have been explained. Um, and this is exactly, you know, the, the Rambam himself writes about this, that, uh, that there's this concept of the concealed Torah, and for some reason Hashem has hidden it from us, and you can't teach it unless you learn it one-on-one. And, uh, and, and the Rambam himself admits about the fact that he never, he never received Torah from his teachers either. And, and he learned from the greatest, the greatest scholars of the, of the generation. Um, and this is exactly why uh, the Rambam decided that he needs to turn to the world of philosophy to explain, you know, how how Torah works to the masses. Um, so this is this is uh, you know this is the, the 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 nature even of the Rambam. There's an interesting question which uh, I guess is a, a controversial one, philosophically and historically. But the question is: Did the Rambam ever? Uh, you know, get access to the world of Kabbalah. Um, from the writings of the Rambam himself, we know that he knows about it, and we know that he claims that he never received it. But the, the question is, when he wrote those Swarim, that was sort of, you know, in his, in his uh, at middle age, right? He, he, okay, he dies in his 70th year, um, but he's publishing these incredible works of Torah um, like nobody else has published to his time, he's publishing them when he's young and middle-aged. The question is, in his older years, what happened there? So there are those scholars who tell us um, that at the end of his life, the Rambam was able to um, re- receive Kabbalah from a particular Kabbalist. So somebody out of the blue, if you can call it that, who looks like a normal individual, but actually contains this unbelievable uh, secret knowledge, you know, emerges on the scene. Um, in fact, the great Abar Bernal writes that he, he heard that the Rambam wrote about this in a letter, where he said that at the end of his life, a person, Hashem allowed a person to come to me and, and revealed certain pieces of information to me uh, which made a lot of sense to him, and 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 the letter apparently I say apparently because I don't know I don't think you know um, I don't know if we have this letter and if we have a letter you know how how do we authenticate it? You know the the Rambam let's assume it's true. So the the, the Barbonel writes that he heard of this letter, and the letter says that if he wasn't at the end of his days, um, and he, and his halachic for him already spread throughout the entire world. He, he would retract many of the things that he wrote. Um, and the, and the Barbonell, you know, the Barbonell was the great Spanish statesman. He was the, fi- he was the finance minister of, uh, of Spain, of the whole entire Spain, and the only Jew that was allowed to remain as a from Jew in, in uh, Spain after the expulsion. So 1492... When uh, King Ferdinand and Isabella, you know, expelled the Jews from Spain, uh, the king gave him permission to stay. Of course, he refused, so he gave up his prestigious position and left. 
But Rebdon Yitzchak Abarbanel, he was one of the greatest thinkers and halachists of uh, of the time. We're talking now, the you know the 15th century. So Abarbanel hears of this letter. He writes about the letter, which in and of itself, because he's a great scholar and a, you know genuinely accepted as one of the great rabbonim of the time. So assuming he you know, he knew what he was talking about. But again, he, he makes a jump and he says that this letter that he heard the Rambam wrote um, and that this man revealing things to him, the Barbara thinks that in his mind, there's no doubt that, that the things that were revealed to him were the Torah of Kabbalah. And this is how the Barbara interprets it. And so, you know, I don't want to call it legend without basis, but this exactly has... Um, you know, this is this is this is one aspect of the legend, and it's specifically of the Rambam, who was the greatest rationalist of 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 his time. So it's interesting that uh, if you accept this particular theory, which I, I would call it theory number one, um, you start to see that even the Rambam himself is going to uh, recognize how philosophy is kind of shallow compared to. The, the real truth of Kabbalah, and he just, Hashem just hid it from him for most of his life. Um, so there were those Rabbonim who claimed that there were other manuscripts from the Rambam where he was writing uh, some of this uh, Kabbalah-type secrets to his Talmudim, to his students. And um, I don't know how long it took, but it sounds like this is theory number two, that, that um, the Rambam is, is saying to his students that that most of his life, you know, he was he he, he didn't reach the he was confused. He never reached the end of his discovery, um, based on the philo philosophical theories that he had. Um, but with Kabbalah, he would have been able to achieve much greater depths. And so this is a this is again letter number two that is purported to to have been written by the Rambam. Um, and so bottom line is, is that it's an interesting thing that Hashem allowed to happen. Hashem allowed the, you know, the expansion of philosophical ideas to, to, um, accompany halachic development and, and, uh, philosophic explanations were used to, um, give us understandings of mitzvot. Um, even though it was sort of clear to the great Rabbonim of the time that something was missing. Um, and this, and this again, it had disastrous consequences. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's interesting to to develop a theory as to why Hashem, you know, hid it hid it from us. Um, anyway, there were there were there was an understanding that that this knowledge, you know, needed to be rediscovered at some point, and Hashem would allow it to be rediscovered whenever Hashem thought it was best for 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 Klal Yisrael. Um, you know, bottom line is that we have we have um, we have verification of how philosophy caused lots of people to to uh, to go astray from Yiddishkeit. They might, have, you know, and you know, be, because people couldn't explain philosophically why you were doing what you were doing. Uh, so there were there were there were Jews in Spain um, in the 13th century. Where 
people weren't wearing trillion or, or writing mezuzahs or wearing tzitzit um, because philosophically they found it impossible to explain what they were doing or they used ideas that they found to give them a, you know, to, to, to define them as people who, uh, who are not of the level. So therefore they didn't do it at all. Um, and you find, you, you find actually letters of great Rabbonim in Spain writing to one another saying, you know, why, why, are you, why are we doing this? Why are we explaining Torah based on philosophical underpinnings of Greek wisdom? Uh, you know, you, you're going backwards and people are straying from the, from the world of mitzvot because philosophy doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't help them. And our bottom line is, is that philosophy was there and it influenced the Sephardim on a, on a, on a level of, of, of notes. Um, and uh, it's interesting how the Rabbonim among the Ashkenazi world did not buy into philosophy in the main. That they were, the Ashkenazim were, were cognizant of the dangers of philosophy. They preferred not to get into it um, because it was uh, it was shallow compared to what the truth was, and therefore they they guarded their communities and they themselves did not venture into the world of of Machshava, like the Machshava's philosophy, like the Sfardi world did, and. Um, Again, I, I, I say this because it's been written, but you know you don't want to just cast judgment when you aren't able to judge. But one of the great statements that that has been um, that has been revealed was as follows: You know why is it that when the Svardim were confronted by the Inquisition, and even the century before the Inquisition, all the oppression. Um, how come Sephardi Jews uh, converted en masse either, either to Islam or to Christianity, depending who was in control, and, and, um, and they left Judaism wholesale. And they, they created a society, as we know, like the Muranos, you know, where you had to, you know, and they weren't prepared to sacrifice their lives for this. Now, one explanation is, Okay, it's one thing, you know, in the in the Sephardi world, they were it was Muhammad or the or the sword. Muhammad believing in saying Muhammad is a prophet. Okay, it's not it's not a heretical statement. Saying Allah is God is not heretical. They all believe in the same Allah, so therefore you didn't have to give your life. But in principle, when 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 the when the Sephardim, sorry, when the when the Muslims were beaten out of Europe by the Christians and the Christians then took over, the same Sephardim couldn't do the same thing with Christianity. Halachically, they couldn't do it. They did it. But um, in the end of the day, it was, it was many people converted. Hundreds of thousands of Jews converted to Christianity. And they never gave their lives for it. Where in Ashkenaz, in, among the Ashkenazim, you never had that, that betrayal, if you can call it that. They never left. They, they they would prefer to martyr themselves than to give one one ounce of uh, credibility anywhere else. And there are those great rabbonim who credit the fact that the Ashkenazim were were shielded from all this philosophy and rationalizations that helped them, you know, stay separate from the goyim completely. And because they never mixed as little as possible, maybe only through business. But um, 
it, it protected them and gave them a, a level of, of faith that was able to withstand greater trials and tribulations than the Sephardim, um, the Sephardim were able to do so. That, that uh, again, I'll just tell you what I've read, but um, this is really what, what, what happened over here. Um, anyway, bottom line is, is that we're going to, we're going to now, you know, part two, we're going to now get back to the discussion as to who among the Rishonim, who were these um, people who had access to some of the teachings and um, who was able to pass it on until eventually it became discovered and uh, comes down to the form that we have it today. So I just wanted to start off the discussion by giving you some historical background with a number of theories here, which um, you know not agreed to by all, but in principle, this is this is the best I can do uh, in terms of understanding, you know what um, you know what happened over here. What what is, what is the nature of the the Jews of the time, you know, between the year, you know, let's call it a thousand and five hundred, um, where Kabbalah sort of receded and no one really had access to it. And then we'll continue to describe some of the great personalities who were known Kabbalists at the time, um, but because of the nature of how the world was primitive in its travel. The, the information didn't make it across the various borders. Uh, okay, but it's interesting to appreciate the historical development and uh, we'll continue until eventually we get into some of the actual systems that were formed to make Kabbalah accessible to, uh, to let's call it, uh, to our times. All right, so I'll leave it there. Wish you, uh, you know, fast well. Wish you Purim um, Samach and everything should go well. If, if you are if you are in need of giving tzedakah, you've got the details. It's a mitzvah to give matanot le'evyonim. So I've got a text deductible platform. Um, I've sent it out on the bulletin. Anyone who doesn't, I'll put it on the group. So anybody who wants to give tzedakah, you can give it into the Jewish Learning Center tzedakah fund, and then I'll distribute it on Purim. Okay. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Take care, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. Have an easy fast, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.